0: Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Maffidon. Thanks for tuning in. Thousands came out this Sunday to walk for a cure at the Dana-Farber Jimmy Fund Walk, and the stories that these families and fighters told were remarkable and inspiring. With their running shoes and red shirts on, thousands walked for the Jimmy Fund on Sunday for the first time since 2019. And it's so wonderful to be back for the first time in person since 2019. The Jimmy Fund Walk, in collaboration with Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, has helped to raise over $155 million since 1989. It was easy for participants to make the 3.1-mile journey, knowing who they were walking for. Dana-Farber has had a measurable impact on patients battling cancer, and those who've been treated by the Cancer Institute have nothing but praise for their work. Dana-Farber is basically like the five star hotel of you know the cancer hospitals they're amazing we've been we've come from obviously overseas so we got to see what it's really like for a lot of people who can't you know even pay for their chemo Um, we ended up spending $20,000 out of pocket in the first month for her treatment In in Pakistan yeah
1: I guess I walk because I mean I walk to save people but I walk because it also really really matters where you go because they just know so much more about cancer than anywhere else.
0: Patients of all ages came together to raise awareness and fight for the cure. Like Anya Rhodes, a Jimmy Fund walk hero who shared her story of bravery, as well as some of her musical talent. This is my first time, and I've been
2: fighting through a lot, and I finally finished, and I. I just feel like a hero right now. Sometimes I lay under the moon And I thank God I'm breathing Then I pray, don't take me soon Cause I'm here for a reason Sometimes in my tears I drown But I never let it get me down
0: so many supporters shared their stories with us, and even the not-so-happy endings had a resounding message.
2: My uncle from Cave Bird, which was my mom's brother, died from cancer. We tried our best to help him, and I really miss him, and I hope he has a good time.
0: From all walks of life, they came. But every participant had one common message. We have to keep fighting. This is something that... No, you cannot
2: let it go you know, because of a cancer. I know it's, it's hard to do it, but you have to keep fighting.
0: Although walkers crossed the finish line, it was far from the end. Teams and Jimmy Fund volunteers came together to refuel and reminisce on the great strides made that day. Pediatric patients literally made their mark to close out the amazing day. Being a part of the Jimmy Fund means being a part of a movement that's motivated to never stop trying to defy cancer.
2: Uh, We'll keep doing it until we don't need to do it anymore.
0: The fight against Parkinson's had people moving in Boston this weekend when hundreds came out to support the Parkinson's Foundation. While sleek college crew boats raced along the Charles River Saturday, up on the bank another race was happening, the one to find a cure for Parkinson's disease. Hundreds arrived at DCR Artisani Park to get their muscles going on Moving Day Boston with the Parkinson's Foundation. They raised over $114,000 as Parkinson's patients and their loved ones celebrated movement. Parkinson's is a neurodegenerative disease, which affects motor control, causing shakiness, stiffness, and difficulty with balance. Since 1957, the Parkinson's Foundation has invested over $400 million in research and clinical care, with donations funding cutting-edge research to one day end Parkinson's. Sometimes I'm really scared and afraid and um, think about what my life will be like in 10, 20 years um, but then other times i'm just so grateful that there's so much work being done so many treatments and so many other treatments on the way and you know they just recently tried to pass that bill in the senate to put more money into research and just so many people out there that are working hard so i have a lot of hope too a lot of hope
2: my dad was very active growing up, work around the house, completely remodeled everything, taught me everything about cars, construction, plumbing, and today he can barely walk. It's, I struggle so hard to understand him and he is so frustrated because he can't do anything that he used to do is such a burden for all of us and my poor dad is down there can't move, can barely walk, can't talk, is in a hospital bed. And, you know, what kind of a life is that to live?
0: Unfortunately, Parkinson's disease doesn't have a one, two, three. You don't have a a beginning and end in a... a final stage per se because it affects different people so differently. It's so debilitating on very many different levels for not just the person that lives with the the disease, but also those that support the person, family members. Um, And it's just so important that we fund this research in order to hopefully tomorrow find a cure for this disease and more measures to make people comfortable while they are living with it. Parkinson's disease can have a devastating effect on patients and their families, and patients can feel like there's no hope in terms of the progression of the disease. What we want to convey is that there is hope, and we can work together to help slow progression, give people hope, help them find quality in their lives, and help us all to work together towards a cure. In Roxbury, community leaders have come together to create a safe space for transitional adults who will access the guidance and resources that they need to succeed. Three, two, one, yeah! Cheers were heard down the block as the red ribbon was cut in honor of the grand opening of the Young Adult Access Center in Roxbury. Children's Services of Roxbury has created this space for transitional adults to receive resources that are usually not available to them after the age of 18. CSR is the largest black run nonprofit in Massachusetts and provides wraparound services to over 6,000 residents every year. The center will provide counseling and career guidance as well as mental health services for transitional adults. After about 18 years old, young adults tend to drop off the radar in terms of supports and services available to them. And this access center is very important because we provide individualized services that are tailored to their needs and their goals. And those Needs and goals can be homelessness, um, substance abuse, mental health needs, housing, whatever resources they need, they're tailored, the services are actually tailored to what they say they need support with. We do have young adults walk past the center. If they look in, they will see either me talking to a young adult, telling them very vital information or just clowning around just because sometimes young adults need that safe space in which they trust that they can receive the resources that they need in order to progress their life to what they might not even know it could be. The young people that come to this community access center will know that they are loved, that they are cared for, that at the end of the day, we understand their worth to our community, to their families, and we will provide them those technical assistances like job searches, Uh, we'll help them find housing, whatever it is that they need, But the bottom line is executing our mission, which is to give people peace of mind. So if this place can provide that for young people, if we can establish trust and the belief in them, then they can access the world. Also in Roxbury, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley visited the Demic Center to celebrate the massive federal funding that they received to start a trailblazing treatment center for Boston's residents who suffer from substance abuse. On Wednesday, Presley celebrated $1 million of federal community project funding for the Dimmick Center and a roundtable with the center's patients and staff. The money will go towards the creation of Boston's first post-detox clinical stabilization program for men. It will also make possible renovations of Dimmick's Z Building to a 32-bed, state-of-the-art CSS campus that provides care to over a 1,000 people each year. Dimick Stands Apart as Boston's full-spectrum treatment center for those struggling with substance abuse. By filling the need for post-detox care within Boston, Dimick Center is restoring hope.
2: If you look at our city streets today, uh, there's people there's people on the streets that have nowhere to go. If they had a detox to come into with hope of, you know, on this campus there's a detox, if they could look across and see that there's people they were in detox with moving on to a CSS and see them smiling, and then look across the street from there and see people in a halfway house smile and get better, I think just the one stop situation is um, very um, good for the treatment
0: three out of four people can actually beat this disease. But to beat this disease, it requires access to the type of resources that this funding provides. By us being able to double our capacity here in clinical stabilization, it actually affords the opportunity for another five to a thousand people, 500 to a thousand people to actually be on that road to recovery. And we think about what that really means across the city of Boston, there are roughly 5,000 people a year who are looking for services. So when we talk about increasing this capacity to serve 1,000 individuals, that's really a significant impact. Too often our country incarcerates and criminalizes pain. Uh, We have a legacy in this country of treating trauma with more trauma. And that is why uh, pace-setting, innovative, holistic, culturally competent and compassionate programs like this one are so necessary to disrupt that legacy and that status quo response um, of criminalization resulting in great shame and stigma and isolation. Greener days are ahead as Mass Audubon's Boston Nature Center in Mattapan invests in community green spaces in the area. There's a lot of hard work involved in planting a tree, but the intrinsic rewards of walking under a majestic, fully grown tree are too many to count. Staff and volunteers from Mass Audubon's Boston Nature Center in Mattapan spent their Thursday morning expanding the city's green spaces by planting 40 trees and shrubs. The activity was made possible by a generous TD Tree Day grant. More than a breath of fresh air, these new trees are providing critical green infrastructure for the next generation.
2: Trees are absolutely essential to our environment they provide us the oxygen we need, they hold down the soil to reduce flooding, they are a key element in reducing climate change. And without trees, this wouldn't be a livable earth. It would be so much warmer, and it wouldn't be the kind of place that you and I would want to survive in. Um, That's why events like this, planting trees are really important.
1: We have to do a lot of this work immediately to help cities adapt to climate change. So we're out here planting trees with volunteers. The community is getting involved in tree stewardship right here in Boston. And we're planting trees that will hopefully live for the next hundred years, providing shade, health benefits, wildlife habitat, food for wildlife, home for wildlife, um, and also places for people to relax in the shade. Where we're planting is around a solar pollinator field. So this is really designed to be beneficial for wildlife. And at Mass Audubon, we're really accelerating what we're doing in cities to bring nature to the city, to keep nature thriving in the city, and to help people get involved and understand why this work is important.
0: For today's Talk of the Town, we offer two rich cultural events as the BNN News honors National Hispanic Heritage Month, which is September 15th through October 15th. First is a film screening of Boston's Latino pioneers, Los Pioneros Latinos de Boston. The documentary follows the journeys of eight local Latino leaders, how they migrated to Boston, and the impact they've had on the city's history. Director Blanca Bonilla will participate in a discussion hosted by the Jamaica Plain Historical Society after the screening, along with some of the pioneers featured in the film. The screening is open to the public and takes place this Saturday, October 8th at noon at Conley Branch Library on 433 Center Street and Jamaica Plain. You can learn more at www.jphs.org. Finally, we offer Payos y Cuedas, Hermanos Saboya, where you can enjoy traditional Colombian Andean music at this event hosted by the Boston University Arts Initiative. Andean trio Payos y Cuedas will perform original compositions on the guitar and the bandola at a concert that's open to the public. Pilosiqueda Yamano Soboya is Tuesday, October 11th at 7 p.m. at Boston University CFA Concert Hall on 855 Commonwealth Ave. You can learn more at www.bu.edu. Next on BNN News Interviews The novel Neighborhood Lines, based on Michael Patrick Murphy and Cornell Mills' friendship, is a story of bravery and integrity. The unflinching story shows the reality of desegregation of Boston schools in the 1980s and how two teens broke all stereotypes by becoming lifelong friends. Here's the interview with Michael and Cornell.
2: Back in 1988, we found ourselves sitting in a homeroom class at a Catholic high school and at that time it was a very uh, racially conflicted city and uh this school had allowed uh, uh had implemented a diversity program to uh increase the uh ethnicity at the school and because our names were Murphy and Mills we sat right next to each other and mm. it was uh, a very unique experience that led to uh over a couple of years it grew to a wonderful relationship. So.
1: Mike and I met in the homeroom and uh, it was interesting you know young teenagers we, we, we sat in the same classroom and we realized that we had a lot of the same interests. Mm-hmm. You know we laughed at some of the same things and had a lot more in common than, uh, than we did differences that had been kind of drawn based on race and obviously it was a time in Boston where um, things were very racially polarized. So it was a great experience,
0: definitely. And and speaking about that, what were some of the initial reactions that you encountered from your friends, your families, and peers as your your friendship was developing?
2: Yeah, for me, it was uh, the majority of the students were white and Irish, like my own ethnicity. So it was um, to mingle or start to hang out with um, you know the the new students it was this peer pressure there's uh, potential you know being a little harassed because we're hanging around each other more often than not you know than the others did or we're sitting in the cafeteria together and people would wonder what the what that was all about and and um, so and then there was a there was a uh, program called the interracial awareness council where all of the uh, students were open to go to it but it mm-hmm. Predominantly was the, yeah. you know, the diverse students that were in that. But, um, yeah. you know, we just we just decided to uh, not let anybody um, give us a hard time and, and kind of continue to see where our relationship went. So, it was, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. And um, you know, I, I think we, we hear we hear a lot of times that church is one of the most segregated places in America. I would add, you know, high school lunchrooms to that to that <laughs> equation because uh, mm-hmm. you know you have you have Every ethnicity, kind of sitting in their own uh, comfort zone. So all the black kids sat in a certain section, um, you know, and all of, the majority of the kids at the school, as Mike mentioned, were were uh, white, Irish, um, Italian, uh, from different yeah. backgrounds. So it was it was a process of just kind of assimilating and trying to get to know everybody there, mm-hmm. um, and also maintain that groundness as, uh, of self as far as like. You know, who, who, who you are as a person and what you stand for um, in an environment that's somewhat different. But it was all a learning experience, I think, more so.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. And Michael, without giving too much away, can you take us through a little bit of the story in Neighborhood Lines?
2: Yes. Um, so, right out of the gate, there's talk from Patrick, the character Patrick, in his home, in his neighborhood, about this new implemented program to increase the diversity at the school. So there's, there's some challenges within and, and some, some uh, negativity about the program and fears of it from the white community and then um, going to school and, and everybody's sharing that in that white community, in that classroom, sharing the fears of this new uh, diverse um, quantity of students coming in so mm-hmm. that begins the beginning of the story and then the the, the classroom the interactions the cafeteria there's scenes from different um, different moments that him and I experienced or that we noticed that other students experienced and uh, I draw on that and, and I explain those those experiences the classrooms but they continue to kind of turn the uh, the established uh, biases or opinions that you might have, and we start to see that these two do have common ground, like Cornell said, and they they share interest. They 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 do bond, and um, you continue on that path. And then life just happens. There's there's a, a there is a murder that takes place, and it's it's a white a white student, and um, that increases the tensions. Mm-hmm. And um, they're going through college. They're going to uh, college applications and, and mm-hmm. SATs, all the things that students do right now. And uh, it really uh, really does uh, relate students now and students then to that experience back in the day. So um, I don't want to give up too much, but the, how they get through that de- the death of that student and the, and the racial tensions that that caused and the continued relationship building between Nate and Patrick and other students in the school... And their neighborhoods um, continues on to uh, have a lot of twists and turns and uh, absolutely it's a great great story and a great learning lessons
0: Mm -hmm. and you know growing up during that time in the 80s the the very early stages of desegregation um, so many things happening Uh, looking back on that time now how would you say that experience has shaped your perspective on boston now cornell
1: that's a great question Uh, you know That was a time of transition for Boston, Uh, you know, early to mid 80s, moving into the 90s. um, A lot of the residents of the city who were black um, were kind of looking to kind of take advantage of some of uh, what Boston had to offer. Um, The redistricting, the redlining, there were some issues around housing at the time. And it was a very racially polarized city. Um, There were lines that were invisible. That, as a black kid growing up, we knew if we went to certain areas or certain neighborhoods, there was a likelihood that you would have to get into a fight hmm. um, and um, the interesting part is that existed in the black neighborhood and and in the white neighborhoods, so there was just a there it was, it was just an atmosphere of, um, of just um, not there was an atmosphere of, of violence, there was a gang culture at the time that was a lot more prevalent than it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that just being able to to meet at a setting, mainly at a at a school, where all those all those issues kind of went away, um, and you could just focus on on education, on building relationships, and on just kind of figuring out who you are as a young man in life, because that's that's really what the the the, the, the expectation or the path that you're on is. We're, we're all trying to find ourselves, we're trying to figure out you know what 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 do we like, what do we don't like, you know what can we benefit from. And what can we learn from? Where are we heading? So, yeah, yeah, so we, we learned a lot from each other in, in those instances, and I was, I'm was i happy that uh, I was able to share some of those moments uh, with Michael.
0: Hmm. And the audiobook was released in September, so last month. Yes. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about the experience of doing this audiobook together? Like why you decided to do it yourself, not hire somebody yeah. else?
2: The, uh, so I had gone down the uh, narrated, narrated version and wanted to see if that was going to be the path I was going to go down. Mm-hmm. And the more I heard it, I didn't really like the, uh, the accents or the passion or the emotion around the scenes and around the entire story. So I, I decided to call Cornell up and I said, Hey, let's give this a try. Let's get into the studio. We'll read a couple of chapters and see if, if it sounds good and we think we can do this. And, um, we went to, uh, Cyber Sound on newberry street we jumped in the studio and i did a few of my chapters and he did a few of his and uh, I immediately knew that that was what we were supposed to do is to uh, come through these characters him and I and we, that's what we did and yeah. I actually really enjoyed listening to him <laughs> be Nate, and and express his feelings and his his attitudes and his thoughts through Nate and it mm. really did uh, Make me feel great about what we're doing, what we're doing, and what we're doing now.
0: Yeah, excellent. And uh, the book was originally published in 2018, but you wrote it while you were in college. I did. Uh, what inspired you to share the story? Finally, I think
2: that there's a lot of incidents that I had in my life around racial conflict, and the fact that. In- the relationship that came out of Cornell and I was one of them that i I had positive experiences and I had negative experiences and all of those combined were over um, overpowered by the relationship and the bond that we had so no matter how bad or negative some of the experiences were the fact how how solid our relationship was was why, was why I wanted to get all of this out of me and put it into a book. So that's that's why. And I'm glad I did it because when I gave it to him in 2018, he was blown away. And mm-hmm. he just couldn't believe that I was able to articulate uh, a version and a uh, story that resembled our relationship.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the the great thing about the audio, audio book, from my perspective, was was just being able to embody the energy of me because it's, it's different when you're reading it um, just to, for yourself versus kind of narrating it for the public. Right. Because then, you, you know, you kinda, it, it brings it to life, as, as, as Mike mentioned. And that, that energy is something that you can only really transfer um, once you kind of feel what that character um, is, is going through and dealing with in those moments. And it felt, it felt really re- real, felt great. So it was, it was, a, it was an amazing experience to, to narrate.
0: Right, and I can only imagine it brought up so many things for you as you were almost reliving it in a a strange way. Uh, So there are um, several moments of crisis that revolve around racial tensions. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how you are using the book to solve conflicts in in youth?
2: Yeah, well, we're... After the pandemic, we're ready to, and the audiobook has been released, we're going to pursue what we started out to do when we first published it in 2018, which is to spread the word of this relationship, spread more positive stories around uh, diversity and the and, and relationships and, and um, the bonds that uh, there's a lot of great stories out there and they're not really being told. A lot of the world, we see the negative stories. So mm-hmm, yeah. we're... we're um, We've gone to a few locations with a few schools and, and either read chapters or go potentially the Boys and Girls Club, and we are looking to uh, just spread the positivity around what the future looks like here in, in the, across the country, and it's a positive, uh, a positive goal that we're all looking for, no matter what race you are, and um, we just want to be part of that.
1: Yeah,
0: great. And ultimately, what do you hope that people take away from Neighborhood Lines?
1: Well, I, I, for me, um, you know, my hope is that folks can look at this book as a as a connecting piece to kind of society. Because what happens so much in this book is you we get to celebrate our our, our commonalities versus kind of what separates us. And it, as we gotten older, you know. Mike, we we have we may have different views on subjects, but because there's a respect level that's goes back you know thirty plus years, we can talk about those those views. We can have conversations that are civil and that are that are understanding. And I think that's really the message that needs to be shared with this book: is you know ce- celebrate celebrate what you all have in common because we're all just looking to 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 you know provide for our families, enjoy a healthy lifestyle, and uh, and, and be able to live as long as possible, you know, in a, in a productive way. So.
0: If you'd like to learn more about neighborhood lines inspired by Michael and Cornell's experience, you can find the audiobook on Audible. Thank you for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Files Channel 2161. We leave you now with a taste of the Roslindale Parade from this past Sunday. For BNN News, I'm Faith Mathedon. I'll see you next Friday.